Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. I almost lost my fucking mind this week researching and writing this case because I'm not sure what the fuck my neighbors are building, but the entire week it was skill saws and metal grinding and welding and drills. And I was like, are you building another fucking house over there by the sounds of it? But when I peeped out my window, (laughs) I actually laughed because it was just like this metal casing that went around their air conditioning unit but the thing is it took the guy eight days to build this why did it take so long I don't know let me just play you a small clip of what I was subjected to for a week hold on yep yep Yeah, yeah, eight days of that almost drove me crazy. It's like two rooms away from my recording studio, right outside of my bedroom window. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I was trying to read this entire novel that I had bought on this case. I was trying to do my best to take it all in and write about this case. And, um... (laughs) It was, it was torture, but you know what? We got there. We got it done. This episode's a few days late, but it's going to be extra long. Okay, so anyways, in this week's episode, I will be talking about the case of two brothers, 20-year-old Jason Bautista and 15-year-old Matthew Montejo. In January 14th, 2003, Riverside, California, near Orange County, which is near Los Angeles County. For researching this case, like I said, I read the book written by Tina Derman on this case, and it's called Such Good Boys. I will link it in my show notes. It's very detailed. She really, really, really got a lot of information on this case. It's quite amazing. So I'm not going to add in everything. Otherwise, this podcast would be about six to eight hours long. So yeah, if you would like to get that book, just follow the link in my show notes. So everyone who who knew the boys, they said that they were good kids, smart kids, polite kids. And everyone was shocked when they appeared in the headlines for being involved in a gruesome murder. To strangers, the most surprising part was who was murdered. But not to strangers, to people who knew this family closely, It made sense and hardly anyone blamed the boys for what they had done, basically. And this this is even including the victim's family, which is also their family. So it sounds really strange, right? It is a strange case. So let's get into it. Jane Osborne was born December 18th, 1961 in Illinois. And she was born into an upper class middle class family. I'm talking private schools. I'm talking annual family vacations abroad, like well off, you know, they had, they had, what's that word I'm looking for? Cause I don't even know it because it doesn't even relate to me at all. Disposable income. <laughs> what is that? I don't know. So this family, they had some disposable income. 
The family moved to Winthrop Harbor, Illinois, when Jane was in her teen years, which borders on Wisconsin, where Jane eventually attended university and met a man named Armando Batista. Since Armando was Belizean, that's where they eventually get married. And when Jane was 19 years old, they go to Belize to meet Armando's family and they get married there. And that was in 1981. Armando's family did not like Jane, like immediately. They were like, oh, what is with this woman? Why is my son marrying this woman? They found her to be insulting. She refused to stay with the family when they were there for the wedding and made Armando get them a hotel room. And Armando, having little to no money, he had to borrow money from his mother to pay for this hotel room. Belize, it is not a wealthy country. There, There's a lot of poverty there. And for a Belizean family to have to rent a hotel room, it is a lot of money to part with. And also Armando's family was really close. So for him to not stay with them while he is in the country, I could imagine is another slap in the face to his family. Very tight-knit family. Even though Jane's family was fairly wealthy, they refused to give Jane money. After all, they had invested a lot into her to succeed on her own. They set her up for her own success. Jane was smart and like she was very smart. She did very well in school. She was very well educated. But something was never quite right with Jane. And unfortunately, she never received the help she needed, even when she was at her worst. And it was undeniable that she needed mental health help. Jane felt like her parents loved her sister more than her, so this caused a bit of a riff in the family. Jane was essentially jealous of her sister. And Jane had also clashed with her mother, as they were both very um, hard-headed women. Perhaps just too similar. Perhaps just they're both strong personalities and they just clashed. clashed. But Jane did, however, get along very well with her grandmother. And it's her grandmother that would supply Jane with money when she needed it. So Armando and Jane, they marry in Belize. Jane's family, they never attended. It's possible they didn't even know what was really happening until Jane returned back to America with Armando and was like, this my husband. Boom, bitches, I'm married. So they were like, okay, thanks for the invite to the wedding. I, I don't even, I'm pretty sure they didn't get an invite to the wedding. None of them were there. They probably would have went had they been invited. It didn't seem like Jane had even really told her mother and father much about what was happening in her life. But it was known that Jane had been violent towards her mother physically, but her mother, she never reported it to police. Armando worked as a handyman and Jane took a job doing clerical work at Cherry Electric. The two didn't have much seed money and were now living in uh, low income housing. Not long after getting married, they had a son named Jason Bautista, and Jason was born in August of 1982. But one year after Jason was born, Jane left Armando, but she always kept his last name. So she is forever Jane Bautista now. She never reverts back to her maiden name. Jane and Armando's two-year marriage was very rocky, and it was known the two could have very volatile fights. This was no secret. Armando wanted to be with his son. He wanted his marriage to work, but unfortunately, Jane wouldn't even try to work on the relationship. This made Armando 
so upset and he became very depressed. It didn't matter how much he pleaded with Jane. She would never hear him out or take him back. One of these arguments even turned a bit physical and they were both pushing each other around and it just was not good. I'm not sure if anyone was hit or how bad this shoving and pushing got, but reportedly it was not good. Not long after this shoving argument, Armando was found dead in his car. Yeah, exactly. What? Tell me more. Okay. So days after the fight on April 7th, 1984, Armando Batista is found dead in his car with a gunshot wound to his chest, blood soaked all over the seats and a gun laying near his body. His car was parked near Jane's work in the parking lot, but who found him? Well, Jane did. And by the time police got there, they said that he had been dead for nearly three hours. Armando had left a two-page suicide note to Jane, and in that note, it read how depressed he was without her in his life, and also how much he loved her. Even though police are, they're a touch suspicious of Jane, because her and Armando had been fighting a lot. They eventually closed the case as a suicide, though. So, how did Jane discover Armando in that car park? What happened there? Well, here's the story she tells police. Jane tells police she was driving by her work at 6 p.m. as her and baby Jason were, they were out running errands when she notices Armando's car in the parking lot and she thinks, that's weird, why is he at my work? So she pulled in to investigate and when she went over to the car, she says she found him dead inside. Okay, that's when she says she alerted security to call police and police arrived less than a half hour later. When I first heard about this situation, I just knew something was amiss. I knew this was not the correct story. There had to be something more to this. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And like Judge Judy says, if something doesn't make sense, it's probably not the truth. Jane tells police that, uh, but years later, she actually confesses what actually happened. After Armando had committed suicide, Jane was quoted saying things like, I hate that motherfucker. Anytime anyone would mention his name around her. That doesn't look good, Jane. That doesn't look good at all. Not a good choice of words to say about your dead husband who has killed himself that you found the body. Armando's sister was among many suspicious of Jane for having something to do with the death of her brother. They had a little bit of, you know, they had a little bit of resentment towards Jane. But Armando's sister still wanted to see her nephew. She still wanted to see Jason, and therefore she kept things civil between her and Jane. But she didn't trust her. Armando's sister had a gathering at her house one holiday, and Jane and Jason were invited. And this is when Jane met Jose Montejo. The two hit it off, but people were warning Jose about Jane. People were saying that they're suspicious of her and that her husband had just died. Even Jose's mother was like, can you like just back off this bitch? I have bad vibes about her. But Jose didn't listen to anyone. And within three months, he was living with Jane. And of course, living with Jane, you're living with her son, Jason. 
Jose said Jane had the ability to be very nice at times, and then they could have like good times together, everything would be wonderful, and then she would just change. She would be angry, she would yell, she would just switch on a dime. Like he said, it was like she was two different people. Jason being only three years old at the time was subject to being whipped and tied up by Jane if he did something as innocent as wetting the bed. She would hit him with wooden spoons, belts, whatever she pleased, whatever was near her, whatever she wanted to hit him with. Absolutely disgusting. And Jose, he did not approve of this at all. Jose is a man of morals and he himself as a child growing up in Belize was subject to an abusive father and it really triggered him. When Jose would say something about it to Jane, she did not sympathize at all. In fact, she just got more angry and more abusive. But it was a really weird dynamic because Jane would still feed and clothe Jason but never showed him any love. She never hugged and kissed him. She never hugged and kissed him. She would never like dote on him. Like, I love you, my beautiful son. Nothing like that. Just basic care. But then like a lot of abuse. So he was healthy, but, and he had clothes and he has had food, but he was really lacking the a mother's love. When Jose would care for Jason and show him fatherly love and buy him gifts and hang out with him, Jane would get so angry. And Jose felt like it would often trigger her rage. And eventually, Jose came to the conclusion that Jane hated Jason, her three-year-old son. So Jose realizes Jane's too abusive to handle and she will never change. And although he can't take away her son, because Jose isn't Jason's father. He can't take Jason with him. He decides to leave Jane. The fighting and the yelling and the arguing, it's just so exhausting. He just doesn't want to continue on this path. But guess what? Mm -hmm. Jane becomes pregnant with Jose's baby. So in an instant, he goes from planning his escape to total 180, asking Jane to marry him. Ooh, Jose, he's really excited to become a father. He wants to marry Jane, but Jane says no to marrying him. If Jane remarried, she would no longer be able to collect social security benefits for being a single mother. So I'm not sure if she actually received any money for the death of Armando, but she was receiving uh, social security benefits for her child. July 4th, 1987, Matthew Montejo is born. Jane doted on her new son. She kissed him and hugged him and loved him endlessly, but all the while never giving any love or affection to Jason. It just seemed like she really hated Jason. After Matthew is born, this is when Jane confides in Jose about what really happened the day Armando died. So Jane tells Jose that Armando wanted to meet up with her that day to talk. And he had Jason in the back of his car because he was looking after him since Jane was working. So this explains why his car was in her workplace parking lot. 
Jane claims that she got into Armando's car to talk because he he must have called her at work and was like, I'm going to come around and I want to have, have, a, have a chat with you. And Jane was like, okay. So she, he, he comes around to her work. She gets into his car. She says they start talking when Armando pulls out a gun and killed himself in front of her and Jason. She said she then panicked, took Jason and drove off in her car. Then three hours later came back and pretended that she had just discovered the body. So what actually happened that day, we will never truly know because Jason, he was just a baby. He would have no memory of this, thankfully, because that's just absolutely horrific. He should have never even been around that situation. Um, We'll just never know what actually happened. To me, the whole thing just seems very sus. Like I don't even think that that's the real story. To me, this just doesn't make sense. And I think that there there might be more to this story, perhaps a more sinister side. I think maybe someone's not saying something and somebody may have contributed to, to this death more than we know, but we will never know. Anyways, Jane tells Jose this. So she tells him this story and he is thinking, okay, maybe this is why she still has a lot of anger towards Armando because he, you know, he did, he's thinking, Armando did this horrific thing in front of her and Jason and she's just never been able to forgive him and and maybe Jason is a constant reminder of that every day even though he felt like he might understand her a bit more and they did have Matthew who Jane loved so much their relationship was still abusive things were not getting better Jane would yell and scream fight constantly but like any abusive relationship she wouldn't be abusive all the time There was good times, Jose said. She would laugh and be nice, but then boom, she would turn angry very fast. So this was still very abusive for Jason. She was still being very abusive towards Jason for things like spilling a glass of milk. He would receive a terrible punishment, like getting hit and screamed at and thrown into his room where he would stay all day, silent and scared, probably just terrified to make a noise. One day, Jane came home very angry because for some reason she went to visit her parents who she hated. Why? I don't know, but she came home raging this day. She turned on her beloved son, Matthew. And by the way, Matthew was only six months old at this time. This just shows you nobody is safe around Jane. Even people she claims to love and shows love to, she will turn on them in a second. So she picks up Matthew over her head and then throws him down on the floor. That is just so fucked up. I can't even imagine a mother doing that to their baby, but she did. And Jose saw the entire thing and got so incredibly mad at Jane. This incident sparked a violent fight between Jane and Jose. And I can just imagine the household in that evening with a baby screaming, Jason hiding in his room, scared, Jose and Jane screaming at each other, but it gets worse. Oh, it gets worse. When Jane and Jose start getting physical, there were slaps being landed, throats were being grabbed. Jane pulled a knife on Jose. The police were called by a neighbor who could hear all this shit going down. Jane lodged assault charges against Jose, but they were later dropped. And for some reason, probably because Jose was scared to leave his son with Jane, they 
remain together in this absolutely toxic relationship. Jane decides she wants to stay at home full time with the kids. So she quits her job and now it's up to Jose to support everyone. So he starts working 16 hour days all day, basically every day. I can imagine he is burning his candle at both ends because he was working nonstop. Then he would go from work to home and then at home he never knows what to expect will jane be nice will she be in a rage will they fight will it be calm he never really knows enter a new element august 1988 jose's ex-girlfriend is back in town and he must have a type because this woman also seems a bit unhinged and is determined to get jose back so determined that she starts threatening jane egging her car which i was like are you in high school leaving threatening letters for jane just a real shit show it seemed so crazy to me that i actually had a theory that jane was doing this to herself and making it look like it was jose's ex-girlfriend because I have covered a case like that before. Maybe Jane was felt threatened by Jose's ex-girlfriend. So it was like, she's so terrible. Look at how she's abusing me. Look at this letter she wrote threatening me. Oh my God, she egged my car. But also there was another reason I think why Jane could have possibly did all this to herself and just said it was Jose's ex-girlfriend. There is no evidence that Jane did do this and it could be totally possible it was all Jose's ex-girlfriend doing this stuff. But Jane, she also wanted to take a really long vacation to Florida. She actually wanted to move. And she kind of used this as like an excuse to be like, well, this woman won't leave me alone, so maybe we should move. And then they're like, well, we can't just move everybody there. Like maybe we should take a vacation there, blah, blah, blah. It ended up with a vacation. So it was supposed to be a week and it turned into three months. Jane was happy. She was loving it. And somehow she kept coming up with money to extend the vacation, which most likely came from her grandmother because Jose had asked her like, how are you affording all of the dinners and the hotel rooms? And she just said she could. So who knows where that money was coming from. Once home from the vacation, Jose had obviously lost his job because he was gone for three months. So they decided to just move. They were like, you know what? I don't have a job right now. Like we love being in a warm climate. They didn't move to Florida. They ended up moving to California. Jane's happy vacation was over and she turned mean and angry again. She may or may not have been on antidepressants before because later... Uh, it was either Jose or Jason says that Jane was prescribed antidepressants at some point, but they never saw her taking any, but she was also known to be secretive, so it's unknown. But would that explain the the period where Jane was very nice um, and then maybe she stopped taking the antidepressants and then maybe she went back to mean? I don't know. That's just a theory because there were antidepressants brought up in her history, Nobody could, could confirm whether or not she was taking them, but at some point she did try to get mental health help and it just, it didn't go well. They probably just stuck her on some Prozac and said, have a nice day, lady. They moved to California by car. So that means they were all stuck in a car with each other for a while. And Jane was taking out her anger on Jason, who was six years old at this time. Jason, this is so fucking sad. Jason grew up thinking this was normal and that this is just how mothers are. 
Once they get to California, Jose finds work again. I believe he was a mechanic and he would also work as a tire technician. And because he was like so hardworking and, and reliable, it wasn't hard for him to find work and, and keep it. This is when Jane started to get really paranoid that Jose was having an affair and would constantly go, th go through his stuff when he wasn't home. And if she found a number jotted down on a piece of paper, she would call it and yell and verbally abuse whoever answered the phone, whoever was on the other end of that phone. She didn't ask questions. She would just start yelling. So Jose, he didn't like to keep phone numbers in the home at all because he was just so concerned that whosever phone number it was, Jane was going to call and then abuse them over the phone. So first of all, that's incredibly embarrassing for him to have to deal with that when it does happen. And second, it's a huge violation of privacy. And what if it just happens to be his boss? Like that could get him fired. One day, Jane did find a number scribbled down on a piece of paper and she became irate she was convinced it was jose's secret lover but in reality it was a male co-worker's number who he had befriended at his new job and when jane called the number and the guy's wife answered she didn't even ask questions she just started verbally assaulting this poor woman about cheating with her husband yikes okay Whew. Jane has all the classic abuser tendencies. She is keeping Jose isolated when she found out he had made a friend at work. Not only did she call and yell at the guy's wife, but also shredded all of Jose's clothes with a knife. She is violating his privacy and snooping around. She is constantly yelling at him and verbally abusing him. But then she will just sprinkle in some good times just to keep him around and keep him hoping that this relationship could get better. Jane started to threaten Jose that she was going to call the police and tell them that he had been sexually abusing their children. And this is a breaking point for Jose, as rightfully so, as it should be. That is one of the worst fucking things Jane could do to Jose is label him a pedophile and have him put in prison for that when he never, ever abused Jason and Matthew in Anyway, not physically, not sexually, not mentally, not emotionally, never, never. He only had the boy's best interests at heart. So Jose, he actually goes and does it. He does the damn thing and he moves out. He can see that if he stays with Jane, his life is going to be ruined one way or another. And he has tried to make it work with her so many times now. He just can't, he just can't anymore. So he's like, bye. Since Jose has no family in California, he has nowhere to go. He has no money to rent a new place. He has no friends because Jane has kept him so isolated. He ends up homeless, but he would rather be homeless than be with Jane for another second. However, Jose worked really hard to get his life back together, but there would be Jane. She would be swoop in and try to ruin everything for him after months of living rough he gets enough money together rents an apartment starts making friends with his neighbors when one day here comes jane she knew where he lived because they still had a son together so he couldn't just disappear when jane arrives jose is helping his neighbor fix her car because he's a mechanic 
and he's a nice guy. But when Jane comes around unannounced one day and sees this, she flies off the handle. And mind you, she has Jason and Matthew with her, but this doesn't stop her from screaming at the neighbor, calling her a whore and yelling at Jose and just causing a huge aggressive scene. Jose wants to remove him and his neighbor from the situation immediately because there is no way Jane will leave on her own. So they get in the car and they drive away, but this doesn't stop Jane. Jane speeds after them, following them all around with her children in the car. And it's only when Jose turns into a police station that Jane finally leaves them alone and drives off. It is clear that Jane needs mental health help. She needs to seek professional help for her rage and her paranoia, but she doesn't. And this is just the beginning of her spiraling out of complete control. It's really sad because had she got the help she needed, things could have been better for everyone. But at the same time, you can see why those closest to her couldn't deal with her. She was just so abusive and so difficult to be around and she wouldn't listen to anybody. So even if somebody had suggested, hey, maybe you should go back to your doctor and and talk about your mental health help, it most likely wouldn't have helped. Jose could, however, put some distance between him and Jane, but Matthew and and Jason, they were stuck with her. Jane wasn't finished with Jose yet. One day she says she's coming over because Matthew wants to see him, but she's just using this relationship to keep a close eye on Jose. When Jane and Matthew arrive at Jose's, she sees a woman leaving his apartment. And when she goes inside, she sees that he's cooking dinner for two, and this makes her snap yet again. She starts smashing up his new place. New TV, smashed. Plates on the table, smashed. Dinner that he was cooking on the stove, smashed, smashed, smashed. She is just on a smashing rampage and Jose is just watching his new life get shattered by Jane. Jose had a lapse in judgment and perhaps couldn't control his own rage. He punched Jane in the face twice, which he admitted later to police He told them, yes, I did it. It was wrong and I shouldn't have done that. And he takes full responsibilities for it. But then police drop a bomb on him. Police tell Jose that he's being arrested for the attempted rape and battery of Jane. Jose is shocked. He never tried to rape her, but that's not what she told police. And when police show Jose photos of Jane's injuries, he's again shocked because there is no way that he did all of those injuries that are in the photographs. Like he's like, it was way worse in the photographs than what I had actually done. Like her, her bruising and her injuries were just much more dramatic. And this makes me think of it. Um, oh, Oh, what, 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 what is that old movie called? Um, Cape Fear. No, that's not it. Is it, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) No, not Cape Fear. I just looked it up. It's called Fear. Okay. I haven't seen it in years, but I just, I just watched the trailer and I am for sure going to rewatch that movie. That's the movie with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, It's a 1996 movie and in it, 
the dad is like, stay away from my daughter, who's Reese Witherspoon. And he's like yelling at Mark Wahlberg to like stay away from his daughter. And the guy, the dad like pokes him in the chest and he's like, stay away from my daughter. Just like pokes him, like wouldn't leave a mark. And then when the dad drives away, Mark Wahlberg starts like punching his chest and like bruising it all up and making it look like the dad had just like assaulted him. And then he goes and tells Reese Witherspoon, his girlfriend, that he's like, your dad beat me up. And then she's like, what? So anyways, this gives me... This gives me that movie's vibes. This gives me fear vibes. Yeah, I'm getting Marky Mark fear vibes from this situation that Jose is in right now. Is it possible that Jane injured herself more, like had given herself more injuries to make a more convincing case? Absolutely. Did she though? Nobody knows. I don't know. Jose lands a three-year jail sentence for this, which really pisses me off because Jane is lying about rape. When it, that's, no. No, 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 no. But what is the real kicker here is that before Jose goes to jail, Jane calls him and asks him if he wants to come and have sex with her before he goes to jail. What the fuck? What the actual fuck? That is so messed up. Obviously, Jose says no. She is probably trying to set him up for rape again, this time with biological evidence or something. I don't know. He didn't know. But Jose, he made such a smart decision because he could have gone over to her place just to see Matthew and Jason because he did. He wanted to go over there and and say bye to his son and like explain like I'll be out in a few years. I don't know if he wanted to like explain that he was going to jail, but he did want to see his son before he went to jail. And then when Jane was like, hey, why don't you come over to my house and have sex with me before you go to jail? He was like, fuck that and he didn't go he stayed far away which is the smartest thing he could have done yes it's sad he didn't get to see his son before he went to jail but he would have been walking into a trap like i am sure of it while jose was in prison jane moves away with the children she doesn't move far but she won't allow jose to know where she has moved but she does stay in california jane tells her landlord that jose that he was like abusive and that he's gonna try to find her when he gets out of prison so don't ever tell him where they've moved to and the landlord believes her because you know he's like okay this poor abused woman her partner's in jail he's gonna get out and look for her and i can't tell him where she is so yeah why wouldn't the landlord believe somebody saying that she was a very convincing liar and yes jose does get out of jail he goes looking for matthew and jason and he can't find them he asks the landlord where did they move to the landlord says i can't tell you so yep he doesn't end up seeing matthew again until years and years and years later in the newspaper. Jane, she wasn't working at all, but she was still getting social insurance for her children and being a single mother, but she was also getting a really nice payment from her grandmother every month for about $1,500 to $2,000, which is a lot considering this was 25 years ago. That's a decent, I don't know, what would you call that, a stipend? That's decent. These payments allowed Jane to move to an upper-class neighborhood into a nice house. Neighbors recall Jane to be, quote, uppity, unquote, snobbe, if you will. They also notice she's constantly going out almost every night around 8.30, and she's going to the bars, and sometimes she's not coming home at all, and if she does, it's really early in the morning. And also, there was a continuous stream of men coming and going from her home 
All the while with Jason and Matthew having to be alone a lot, almost every night. And this leads to Jason being a caregiver to Matthew, essentially. Jason would cook and clean and get them off to school. And he just had a lot of responsibility for a child. I think at this time, Jason was about 10 or 11 years old. So imagine being 10 years old and cooking dinner almost every night. I have a hard time doing that and I'm 33. The neighbors would see Jane leaving every night in fishnet stockings and tight leather tiny skirts. And although I don't personally, I don't condone judging people on what they're wearing. Like I don't give a fuck what people are wearing, but this is like an upper middle class neighborhood. So you can see that they would. And they came up with a nickname for Jane and they referred to her as Trixie. So I will just let you figure out what they were trying to say there they knew that she had two children they could see what was going on and I mean like I said upper middle class neighborhood they were going to know your business nowhere did I read that Jane was involved in sex work but I also didn't read she wasn't so I'm not really sure what was going on there the book just said that Jane was chasing after wealthy men and these men would buy her a lot of things and probably give her money but that's Jane's business so you know I don't I don't know what's going on there and that's her business okay the neighbors could also hear the torrent of abuse Jane would spit at Jason all the time when she was home. Jane would drag him around. She would lock Jason out of the home a lot and leave him sitting on the, the street corner until eventually well into the night she would let him back into the house. One time when Jason's perfect grades started to slip and he got a B instead of all A's, she tied him up with electrical cord. That is, that's just fucked up. And uh, I, yeah, that's just so, that's just fucked up shit. And yeah, a child who is subject to abuse is not going to get perfect grades. It amazes me that he did so well. And, and he was known to do so well in school because his home life was less than ideal. Jason, he was a very smart when it came to ac academics. He loved school. The year 1996 rolls around and uh, Jason, he would have been about 12 or 13 years old at this time. And he starts to think like perhaps Jane is mentally ill and it really becomes quite apparent when they take a vacation to Las Vegas. Apparently Jane really loved going to Las Vegas and on this particular trip, they were watching a musician on television, uh, some, some type of performer. And Jane, she gets really serious and she says to Jason that the musician that they're watching, they, that he had stole those lyrics from her because she met him once. And now the singer is getting rich on the lyrics that he stole from her and because of that they are trying to kill her and just gives this crazy story and this is the first known paranoid delusion that Jane expresses that I know of meaning if she is a paranoid schizophrenic it is getting really bad and she needs help as soon as possible but she never gets it and things just get a lot worse from there. Back in California, Jane starts to get increasingly paranoid that Mexicans and Jewish people are trying to kill her. This is, this is her words. 
um, that they're trying to kill her, that people are hiding in her backyard, stalking her and trying to harm her. She changes her routine. She won't leave her home during the day because to her, it makes it harder for her stalkers to spy on her, these people who are watching her. Jane does manage to befriend one of her neighbors and they actually go on a ski trip together. And Jane brings Jason and Matthew, her friend the entire time. She just said it was so uncomfortable during the entire trip because Jane would not stop belittling Jason and picking on him, yelling at him, just bullying him the whole time. Made it really awkward. So Jane's friend had recently gone through a tough breakup like a few months before. And of course, Jane knew about the breakup. And at the end of the trip, Jane tells her friend she is now dating her friend's ex-boyfriend, the one that she had just broke up with a couple months ago, that she was having a really hard time with the breakup. Jane's like, yeah, that guy, yeah, I'm dating him now. And her friend is like, what the fuck? Okay, I guess that's happening now. So of course the friend, she's really upset by this and she breaks off her friendship with Jane. In reality, I wonder if Jane actually was dating this woman's ex-boyfriend or not. It's not, you don't really hear much about it after that. I think maybe it was like another, I feel like it didn't exist. I feel like that situation wasn't real and I don't know why Jane would say that if it wasn't true. I don't know what happened there. But after this trip, things got worse for Jane's mental health. And she was constantly calling the police saying there are illegal Mexicans living on her roof and in her yard, which there wasn't. But Jane said she could hear them at night moving around and she could see them in her bushes. Jane would stand in her yard at nighttime and throw tennis balls at the roof, claiming she was trying to hit the Mexicans that were living up there. And she even blamed her neighbor for hiring illegal workers. And that's why they were living on her roof. Her neighbor was shook when Jane confronted her with this one day. Her neighbor was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like she wasn't hiring, like she had, she was like, there's nobody living there. I'm not hiring illegal workers. Like I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know if this woman was hiring workers at all. Like it is, anyways, the neighbor was just shook. She was like, I don't know, bye, go away. Then one day Jane just packed up her kids and moved away with no warning. I'm sure her neighbors were happy she was gone, but it also meant Jason and Matthew were uprooted and carted around with a woman who was clearly suffering from a severe mental illness. From 1996 to 1998, Jane had moved seven times, maybe more. Of course, everywhere that Jane went, she carried her paranoid behaviors with her, and this led to her essentially running from imaginary threats, imaginary people that were after her. Eventually, she settles again in a nice home, in a nice neighborhood, but quickly the community notices something is not right in that household. Jason and Matthew are seen as very well-behaved good kids. Jason excels at academics and Matthew at sports, but Jane, on the other hand, is seen as an abusive mother because she was. Neighbors would hear her yelling at the boys, like things like, quote, you're just like your good for nothing fathers, unquote, and you're losers like your father, and so on and stuff like that. She would just yell at her kids, which is just terrible. This leads to Jane's neighbor calling social services on her. And when they come in to investigate the situation, they didn't get past her front door. She just yelled at them to get the fuck off their property. And they did. And they never returned. And they never recorded the incident, the situation. Like it just went, it just got swept under the rug. And nobody from social services ever dared to kind of take on this case again. It just went away. 
Jane thought that maybe Jason or Matthew had something to do with the social services visit and she threatened to kill them if anyone from social services ever came back. So I'm not really sure what evidence social services needs to get more involved, but I feel like they really dropped the ball here. At this point, Jane was tinfoiling the windows of the home, wouldn't leave the house in the daylight, and would be seen leaving around 1 a.m. Um, often. So one of the neighbors was like, okay, I'm going to play a bit of a detective here and I'm going to follow her and I'm going to see what the hell she's up to on these late night rendezvous. So the neighbor follows Jane. Jane pulls into a hotel parking lot and she's talking to a strange man and the man hands her an envelope and Jane accepts the envelope and then the neighbor was like what the fuck is happening and she just like pieces out she's like i don't know what's happening here she's like okay what i think is happening is that jane hired a private investigator to gather information on the stalkers she had who weren't actually real or she hired a a private investigator to be like there's people after me there's people spying on me i want you to find out who they are i want you to find out what they want etc etc so this is what i think maybe maybe is happening here so she's like meeting him late at night to try to get information on these people who she believes are watching her or out to get her day-to-day life for jason was really tough having jane as a mother she was physically abusing him she was locking him out of the house and making him sleep in the garage and this was all taking a toll on jason's personality as it as it had all of his life he was a shell of a 16 year old boy he was quiet and meek he was also very big for his age he was six feet tall and he was a solid build all of this made him a target for bullies so now he's being bullied at school he's being bullied at home he just has no no place where he can go that offers him peace Teachers notice Jane is not looking good. She's wearing dirty, messy clothing. Her hair is just unkept and wild, just unbrushed, and she just appears to be having a hard time keeping her shit together. Matthew, he joins a hockey team, which Jane reluctantly allowed, and she wouldn't let him be in any photos. She didn't want to even provide a birth certificate for registration, which those are huge red flags to teachers and coaches. You won't allow your son to be photographed. You don't want to give me his birth certificate. If I was a teacher or a coach, I would be thinking, did you steal this child? That would be my, my first thought. Jane was telling the other parents she was being stalked by people in the entertainment industry and that they were after her. She would say how broke she was one day and then later she would brag about how wealthy she was. She made veiled suggestions that Ralph Lauren from the clothing line was after her and she just spun some really wild tales. Nobody really knew how to take her, just like a pathological liar. But because she actually believed it all, they at some points they kind of did too they were like she was really convincing that people were out to get her these the people believed it jane would call them saying that people were after her and they had found her and they were in her yard and then when i don't know if it was like other parents but she kind of like befriended one of them and the woman was like well like are you okay where are you and then when the woman asked like where are you Jane was like starting accusing the woman like you must be in on it you want to know where I am and she was like no like I just want to make sure you're okay so it was it was just such a mess anyone who got near 
Jane would just, it, it just got super messy. And eventually Matthew had to leave the hockey team because Jane ended up fighting with everybody. She was just so mean and so abusive to all the other parents, the coaches. She was just, they couldn't handle it anymore. So unfortunately, Matthew got kicked off the team because of his mother. And Matthew, he loved being on that team and he was getting along with everyone and everybody got along with him. So Jane enrolls Matthew onto a new hockey team so she can start fresh with her abuse on new people. I don't know. And um, she pulls the same shit there. Tells them lies about how Matthew's father is an important Hollywood person and he's trying to steal Matthew. She grills a parent on if they would give up Matthew's whereabouts if a stranger offered them $40,000. And the parents were like, what? Like, no, I would never put your child's safety in jeopardy for any amount of money. It, yeah. Some of the parents, they tried to befriend her, but not long into Matthew joining the team, Jane had burned every bridge. She had like gasoline and matches. And if there was a bridge, she would just light it on fire. So yeah, she burned all those bridges with her abuse and it led to police actually having to tell her and Matthew to leave the team and never come back back the coach was so sad for Matthew because everyone liked him and it it destroyed his coach to have to tell Matthew that he can't be on the team anymore because of his mother so you know it had to be pretty fucking bad for the coach to have to do this and Jane did leave she was like okay we'll leave but then the next day she came walking back in pretending like nothing had happened and she was like what we're here for practice and they were like no you have to leave it just would have been so embarrassing for Matthew. But the coach pulled Matthew aside and was like, I'm really sorry. This isn't about you. You're a great teammate. Everybody likes you. This is your mother. The coach just felt so bad for Matthew. It's just such a oh such an awkward embarrassing situation so when Matthew was on the team Jane would do stuff like stand alone and not speak to anyone which is totally fine and, and I get not feeling social but when someone offered her hot chocolate and donuts she lost her shit on them she like went irate and uh, I don't understand that at all because I love hot chocolate and donuts so I don't know I don't know what was happening here Jane started yelling at the woman about her son being favored on the team and really spouting abuse like a thousand miles an hour Jane yelled at the coach. Jane yelled at anyone who was in sight, basically. <sighs> Calm your titties, Jane. It's hot chocolate and it's kids hockey. Just, just chill. Just chill. So anyways, Jane did not chill. You know, Jane believed everyone on the team was being paid to keep an eye on Matthew for his abductor. <sighs> just, she's not okay. And nobody, nobody could do anything to help her, which is just so sad. Anytime people tried to get close to her hey would you like some hot chocolate would you like some donuts she would just snap your son's being favored on the team and da 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 and it's like whoa 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 like nobody could get close enough to help her and she wouldn't i feel like she just wouldn't wouldn't accept help while Matthew was getting kicked off the team because of Jane, Jason, he was throwing himself into school and he earned enough credits to graduate when he was 16. I think it was he could graduate a year earlier. And to Jason, he was happy about this because it meant he could potentially leave his home and go to university and lead a life where he isn't constantly abused. I think it's amazing that he did so well in school while growing up in a very unstable, abusive home. That is just incredible. But in order for him to graduate early, Jane needed to sign off on it. And it surprised him when she did. She thought it was worth 
bragging rights and she would tell anyone who would listen how smart Jason was and that her son is graduating a year early Mm, but don't be fooled Jane would never stop abusing Jason and making him feel like shit Jason's plan it was foiled when he didn't get to leave home to study because the university he got into was San Bernardino University and it was close to home which meant he could commute to school every day Perhaps he didn't try harder to move away because he was only 17 at this time. And maybe also he didn't want to leave Matthew alone with Jane. But either way, he stayed living with Jane and Matthew and he would commute to university every every school day. One night, Jane turned on Jason, this time saying he was in on it and they had got to him and they were paying him off. Who's they? No, There's no they. She they, 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 who knows? Jane threatened Jason with a knife. Then she picked up a hockey stick and hit him so hard in the head with it. He needed to go to hospital and be treated for the wound. Blood was pouring from his head. Jason was so scared of his mother that he lied to doctors under her direction. She was like, if you tell them I hit you, I'm gonna hit you more. I'm not sure what she said, but she threatened him and he was like, "Mm, I believe you. So he told doctors that he was hit on the head with the hockey stick while playing. It was an accident. And they're like, okay, well, he's a 17-year-old boy. They get a, you know, sometimes they're roughhousing. They believed it. They didn't ask any questions. In 1999, Jane actually went to go see the family she hated so much. Her mother and father. She hated them. So she went to see them. I don't know why she keeps doing this. It was clear to them she was paranoid and mentally unwell, but there was nothing they could do as she wouldn't respond well to being offered help. She would just think they were out to get her. So they did nothing. They just saw her off after this terrible visit. I'm sure it was a real treat. By 2000, Jane, Jason, and Matthew were homeless as Jane was determined all the neighbors were in on whatever it was that she thought was out to get her. She wouldn't settle in one spot because she was convinced that they, again, I don't know who they is, that they would find her. Um, So they were living in their cars. Why Jason didn't get his own place and abandon her, I have no idea, but I, I, I can imagine this situation is very complex. It's more complex than I can understand. I've never been in a situation like this. So it's really impossible to say, you know, why what happens is what happens. The Yeah, like I said before, maybe Jason just wanted to stay close to Jane to make sure she didn't hurt herself or Matthew, or perhaps he thought if he left them, he would never see them again. Abusive relationships can be so hard to navigate and leave. And considering it's his mother and brother, You can see how this would have been very complicated. Jane was sure she was being secretly filmed and that the recordings were being broadcasted in Mexico where they were all laughing at her. That's what she thought was happening. That is her reality. It's terrifying that that's her reality, but it's also really sad that that's her reality and there is help for her, but she didn't seek it. It's, yeah, it's just so sad. Because of not having a home and living in their cars, Jason lost his job and was kicked out of the university for poor grades. His grades really slipped. He had lost all the stability he was working towards building. They had two cars though. They had a new car, which Jane put in Jason's name and he was making payments on it. So technically this was Jason's car. It was in his name. Jane was co-owner of the car. Maybe it was in both of their names. They were both connected to this car. We will see later. Um, But Jason was the one paying for it. He was making all the payments on it because he had a job at that point. 
And they had an old car, which Jane made Jason drive and sleep in. So Jason was sleeping in the old car and Matthew and his mother were sleeping in the new car. During this time of homelessness, Jason wasn't going to give up. He enrolled in community college and got another job at a hotel chain working front desk. His coworkers, they said he was rude and and he had this like air about him that he thought he was smarter than everyone. But at the community college, he joined a chemistry club and the people in this group said that he was so nice. So depending on who you talk to, it just paints Jason in in a different light. By December of 2002, Jason has enough of the homelessness and going along with Jane's mania. So he takes the new car, which is in his name that he pays for, and he leaves with it. His former university friend offers him his dorm room to sleep in because his friend has a new place but he still has a bit of a lease on the dorm room he's got his car he can stay in this dorm room he can have showers he can drive to work he can drive to the community college he's attending he's got it he's got it semi-sorted like he's working on it but jane she freaked the fuck out when she saw the new car was gone and knowing jason took it she goes to his work and causes an embarrassing scene she takes the new car and she leaves him stranded now jason has no car no way to get from the dorm room to his community college because this is at the university he's not at the university he's at the community college and he has no way to get to and from work so he has no choice but to find jane and continue to live under her thumb which made jason mad he 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 just, he couldn't see an escape. He had no way to get out of this situation. And this is when he decides that he wants to kill her. He feels there's no way out but this. They were living in the cars most of the time, but from time to time, Jane would rent a motel room so they could shower and wash clothes and get a good sleep in a bed. So this is where they were staying at this particular moment when Jason went back to um with Jane and Matthew and he convinces her to lease an apartment and she actually doesn't so now they at least have that she wouldn't move anything from storage because she wanted to be able to go on the run at any moment and if they found her she didn't have to pack up an apartment they didn't have anything in their in their new place they didn't have a fridge they didn't have beds jason and matthew slept on the floor in sleeping bags there was no cable tv no internet no cell phones allowed because those things made jane increasingly paranoid she thought that's maybe maybe that's how people were listening in on them or gathering information on them was through things like cable tv internet and cell phones Jane had also thought that it was a good idea to get a dog. So now that's also in the mix. They have a dog now. The apartment was strictly a no pets place. So she had to keep this dog in her bedroom or bathroom most of the time. And she couldn't walk the dog during the day because they couldn't see a dog coming and going out of the apartment. So I can't even imagine the cruelty this dog endured. Stuck in a bathroom or a bedroom for probably like 14, 15 hours a day, maybe going out for a half hour at nighttime. If that, if ever, it's just, oh, I don't know why they got a dog. Okay. Okay, so this apartment that they moved into, it was located in Riverside, California. And this is where the case takes its sinister twist. Now they have a stable living situation again. Jason has pulled up his grades in the community college and he can now go back to the university he was kicked out of. He was majoring in biochemistry and he had high hopes for his future. He wanted to eventually go on to attend Harvard Law School and then pair the two degrees to be some kind of patent lawyer. 
specializing in biochemistry. At the university, he also got another job working in the computer lab as he was quite tech savvy and he loved it because there was no internet allowed in his house, but at his computer job lab, it was essentially on tap, you know, internet on tap, baby. So he was loving it. He would download all his favorite shows like that 70s show, X-Files and The Sopranos. And then he could burn them onto a DVD, take the downloads home, and then he could watch those shows with Matthew. Side note, can we just appreciate how amazing The X-Files was? Uh, I might go back and rewatch that entire series. Okay, things to watch. The 1996 Mark Wahlberg film, Fear. When was The X-Files made? 90s? Mid-90s? The mid-90s TV series, The X-Files. Those are all on my to-watch list. Okay, back to the podcast. Jason loved The Sopranos. I have never seen the HBO series, but apparently Tony Soprano also deals with an abusive mother. And in one episode, he ends up killing his mother, cutting off her head and hands. And Jason watched this episode more than once as if studying the technique, perhaps. And we will see later why this episode of The Sopranos is relevant to this case. Jason at this time, he's 20 years old and Matthew is 15. And admittedly, Jason says the first three or four months in the Riverside apartment, it was good for Jane. She seemed to be less paranoid and easier to live with. And she really seemed to have a, a control over her mental state until one day she doesn't. And it all starts back up again. Jane is convinced the maintenance guy and the neighbors are trying to steal Matthew because they're pedophiles. She says there are hidden cameras watching her in the apartment, that people broke in and, and they hid those cameras everywhere. She thinks Jay Leno is directly making fun of Matthew on television. And she starts getting angry and abusive again, asking if Jason is molesting Matthew. And she's accusing Jason of being um, paid off to, to get her or to get to her or to gather information on her, which isn't true. Jason never molested Matthew. That was just not true. And Jason was not being paid by them or they to watch her and keep tabs on her. But he couldn't, he couldn't tell her that it didn't make sense because that would just send her flying off the wall. And Jason, he just, he can't handle it anymore. He got back into university. He has two jobs. He's making money. He's finally feeling stable again after years of being homeless. And he knows that his mother's paranoia is going to cause her to run away again and take them with her. And he couldn't stand the thought of being homeless again and losing his jobs and getting kicked out of university again. But Jason, he's 20 years old at this point. So could he not have just kept the lease on the apartment and and just kept paying it and lived there? But I guess he just, he didn't know where Jane would go, if he would ever see Matthew again, if she took Matthew, if he would be okay. Again, I'm not sure. So Jason, he decides his mother must die. He pitches his idea to Matthew about murdering their mother and Matthew says he won't stop him, but he also won't help him. And Matthew didn't think that Jason was serious. Jason said he wanted to make it look like self-defense because after all, it wasn't out of the ordinary for Jane to threaten Jason with knives or with violence or even with death. 
At university, Jason seemed to be opening up to friends about his dislike for his mother, something he had never done before. He was telling people that he has to work so much to support her and his brother because she doesn't work. Jason is also seeming more happy and maybe it's because he finally getting all this stuff off of his chest or perhaps it's because he's made the decision to kill Jane and is imagining his future without her in it and maybe that makes him relieved. That gives him some happiness. Classmates notice when Jason is working on an assignment, he has headphones in and he just keeps repeating over and over again, quote, it always amazes me how I can kill a man and it doesn't phase me, unquote. And he is listening to this song on repeat for a long time and he's singing it over and over and over again. And classmates are like, what the fuck is he doing? Like, this is kind of annoying. Um, so they, they were like, okay, um, I guess this is the song he's really into right now. So this brings us to January 14th, 2003. Jason comes home from school. Jane is ranting and yelling about pedophiles upstairs, trying to steal Matthew. There are people going, she's saying that there are people going through her garbage to get information about her. And Jason is just so sick of hearing about all the paranoid thoughts. Like she's unhinged on this day. She is she is just in a whole other world and she truly believes all this this is her reality and jason knows that if he tries to talk her down or tell her that nothing is happening and nobody is is trying to get her or matthew it infuriates her so usually he just says nothing and ignores her but not on this day jason says to jane i don't believe you And he also tells Jane that the people you're accusing of being pedophiles, they aren't. He's just a regular guy. He's not a pedophile. You're this, none of this is true. And this sets Jane off because she hates it when people say they don't believe her. And she starts screaming and yelling, accusing Jason of being paid to watch her. Then she tells Jason to leave and starts packing his bag to kick him out of the apartment. And Matthew, he can hear all this fighting and, and he goes to hide in the bathroom with in Jane's room with the dog, which is just a really sad mental image. Jane regularly kept the dog in her bathroom and bedroom, like I said earlier, because they weren't supposed to have a dog in the home. The fighting continues and Matthew and the dog end up coming out of the bathroom and it's like an ensuite situation. So then they go into Jane's bedroom until the whole fight can blow over. So Matthew has the TV turned up loud trying to like drown out the arguing. And he says 15 minutes later, he hears a a really loud thud. And he's like, um, okay, that big thud just came from the living room. And then that was followed by calmness and peace. The fighting had ended. And so had Jane's life. Jason opens the door to Jane's bedroom where Matthew is. And they look at each other for a moment. Then Matthew asks, what happened? And Jason stayed silent to the question. And Matthew just, he knew. He was like, I know what just happened. You don't even need to answer me. And they're just looking at each other. The next thing Jason asks Matthew to do is to come check on Jane and see if she's breathing, which Matthew does, and there is no sign of life. She lay on the floor, beaten and strangled to death. The two boys at this point were emotionless. The constant abuse and yelling, it had stopped, but at a huge price. And now they needed to figure out what to do next. Jason says it needs to be taken care of like the Sopranos aka soprano style aka that episode he watched more times than once 
Matthew is like immediately no, no, absolutely not. He knows exactly what Jason's talking about. He's just like full stop, no. So Matthew, he takes off for a while. He goes outside to like smoke cigarettes and walk around. In the book, it says that Matthew went to a friend's house to see if he could get some weed to smoke. And I could not think of a worse time to smoke weed. It just, it must not induce anxiety in him. I, I don't get it, but if that's what he thought would calm him down, maybe it would. But his friend isn't home, so he just smokes cigarettes instead. Jason goes to the shops and buys a literal murder cover-up kit, including garbage bags, bleach, and rubber gloves. He also purchased Mountain Dew and chewing gum to make the transaction less sus. I didn't say that in the book. I'm just throwing that in because that's why I think you would add on Mountain Dew and chewing gum to your murder cover-up kit. But I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to do the do, you know? Jason eventually showed emotion and he did cry and even contemplated killing himself, but maybe he was crying because he was going to get caught and maybe he thought killing himself was, um, you know, a way better out of all, all of the trouble than getting caught. Either way, he ends up dragging Jane's body into the bathroom and this gets graphic. So if dismemberment makes you squeamish, perhaps skip ahead a minute. Jason places Jane over the bathtub face down with her head in the tub. He cuts her hair around the back of her neck with scissors so he can see exactly where to cut. He then uses a cheap butcher's knife from a brand new pack of knives, which I believe the, enti the entire set costs around $10, just to give you an example of what he's working with here. He had to stop to throw up, so police call these hesitation marks where you where the person like starts to cut and then they stop because they've hesitated for some reason in this case jane's body had hesitation marks on it because uh jason had to stop to throw up he probably underestimated how gruesome this process would be seeing something on tv I could imagine is a lot different than doing it in real life it would have been absolutely horrific once he has cut all the way through Jane's neck, he cuts her hands off. Then he presses on Jane's body until all the blood from her body, well, a lot of it, she was found almost completely drained, goes down the drain through her neck. So she's draped over the tub and he's pressing on her body and the blood is flowing out of where her head used to be, which is just an absolutely horrific image. He then puts the hands and head into garbage bags. Uh, then he puts those bags into a duffel bag, which was later discovered in the hallway closet. The knife and scissors were cleaned and placed back in the kitchen drawer. Jane's body was wrapped in a sleeping bag and placed in the back of a car. Jason tells Matthew he needs his help, not disclosing any detailed information with Matthew, but I'm sure Matthew could have guessed what they were going to do. The two boys get in the car and drive around for hours, not talking, just in silence. It wouldn't be until the next day on the news that Matthew would learn details regarding his mother's death. First, Jason wants to dump the body into a large dumpster in Oceanside where they used to live years ago and they find a dumpster on South Pacific Street where a home must have been undergoing renovations. 
renovations, renovations, because the photo I saw of this dumpster looks like a home was being gutted for, you know, renovations, those huge skips they have outside of homes when they're gutting them. When the two boys are in mid toss, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So they find this dumpster. I'm not sure if he had planned this specific spot to dump Jane's body, but they're driving around and they find it. So they pull up to the dumpster, they get out of the car, they start pulling Jane's body out of the car. It's wrapped in the sleeping bag and they're trying to heave it into this large dumpster. When the two boys are in mid toss, a security guard catches them and tells them like, hey, you can't, you can't illegally dump your trash here. Because at first the guard just thought it was people illegally dumping garbage. But as the boys froze for a second, they were like, oh shit, we're caught. They didn't say anything, they just froze. Then, so then they're like, okay. So then they start moving again and, and they start fumbling with the body in a sleeping bag to put it back in the car. And that's when the security guard sees what he believes to be a human foot sticking out of the sleeping bag. Could you imagine? You're a nighttime security guard. You come across two people dumping a large body-shaped bag into a huge skip you yell at them a foot falls out of the bag it is just so creepy this is what horror movies are made out of so the guard tells them to freeze but jason basically says fuck you you have no power you're just a security guard and the boys they speed off with a body in in the they they speed off with the body back in the car they took the body with them the guard had pulled a gun on them, but he decided not to shoot and instead he got the license plate and phoned it into police. So he made a report about this. What were the boys going to do now? At first, Jason was going to claim self-defense, but perhaps the condition of Jane's body would have easily shown a brutal attack and nobody would have believed him. So his next plan is to hide her identity by removing the hands and head that he did at the apartment and then dump the body as a Jane Doe. Jane, Jane Doe. Wow, I wrote that. I just, oh my goodness, a Jane Doe. And her name was Jane. <laughs> so he wanted to dump the body as a Jane Doe. But those plans were foiled by the alert security guard. So now uh, Jason and Matthew are driving around again and panic sets in. And he decides to pull over on the highway and toss the body down a cliff. But it was about 2 a.m. So he probably couldn't tell it wasn't that steep or maybe he was counting on it being nighttime forever. I I'm not really sure. While throwing the body down the cliff, he gets mad because he got blood smears on his favorite pants. And we know this because he later tells police that. When I read that he was wearing his favorite pants to dump a body, I was thinking, what the hell did he expect? He's going to dump a body and he wears his favorite pants? I don't know. When Jason and Matthew return home without their mother, they actually tried to sleep, but neither of them could for obvious reasons. And by 5 a.m., Jason was scrubbing down the home and discarding evidence like the clothes he was wearing, the clothes Jane was wearing, the hair he had cut off of her and stuff like that. Because when they had got rid of their mother's body, Jason had removed her clothing. I think she was just wearing underwear when she was discovered. So he took all of that evidence, he bagged it up and he drove it to a dumpster far enough away that he had to drive to it. So he didn't he didn't discard it in his apartment dumpster. He did go quite a ways to get rid of that evidence. 
He told Matthew to go to school and Matthew did. Jason was like, everything has to look normal. You just go to school. And then after Jason was done scrubbing around the apartment, scrubbing down the apartment with bleach, he as well then went to school. January 15th, the next day after the murder at 8.30 a.m., Jane's headless, handless, almost nude body was discovered, but with no fingerprints and no dental records, it was really hard for police to ID her, like almost impossible. The cliff that Jason had decided to dump the body was obviously not a very good hiding spot. It was The body was discovered very, very quickly. It only would have been down there hours. Later that day, Matthew saw on the news the condition that the body was found in and he couldn't believe it because he didn't know the details and when he asked Jason about it that's when he learned the remains were in the home in a bag still Jason didn't know where to dump them yet so he was just waiting until he had a solid plan which never comes about Jason gets rid of all of Jane's personal belongings in the home, like her clothes, her toothbrush, her suitcase, everything, and he throws it all away. He then instructed Matthew to tell anyone looking for Jane that she ran away to Belize with a boyfriend she had met online. The household changed after this, and Jason took their stuff out of storage, and they now had beds and a couch. He bought them cell phones, and he I think they even got cable. He allowed Matthew to have his friends over. Before that, they never had cell phones as, like I said, Jane wouldn't allow them and they would never dare bring friends over because Jane would most likely verbally abuse them and accuse them of being out to get her. So they never had friends over. Now, Matthew's allowed to have friends over. They're coming over, they're playing video games. The home was peaceful. And despite there being human remains in the closet, it was the most normality the boys have ever had, which just speaks volumes. A week has passed by this point and police have just discovered the report that the security guard had made the night of January 14th when he caught two boys trying to dump what he believed to be a body. Why that report wasn't seen sooner, I don't know, but it was a solid lead and from that police get the license plate and from that they pull up Jason and Jane's names and driver's license pictures because they're connected to the license plate. It's their car. The security guard ID'd the picture of Jason saying like, yep, that is for sure the guy. So police, they want to know where Jane is. Even though Jason had cut off Jane's head, the police knew that the woman they were trying to identify had red hair. They could tell by her body hair. And in Jane's picture, she has red hair. Also, the height and body weight matches her description. When police find the registered address to the vehicle, it was a post office in an area that they had lived six years ago, so that did not help police much. Police then run Jason's name, and nothing comes up. No record at all, not even a minor traffic offense. On paper, Jason is clean as hell, but they keep running his name through different systems, and finally they discover where he works due to the employee development department. The officer calls the hotel and speaks to the front desk, claiming they are looking into a missing person and they need to speak to Jason, but he's not there. So his work gave the officer the name of Jason's university and told him that Jason would be there right now. And the police were like, okay, let's do it. So police go to the university and they pull Jason out of class and they tell him someone has reported his mother missing. They notice how nervous he is. He is not... He's not cool, calm, and collected. He's like fidgeting, sweating. He's, he's nervous. 
He says he last saw Jane Monday when she called him so they could switch cars and then she left with her boyfriend to go to another city. I think he said Corona. Corona? Corona. I'm not sure where that is. Maybe it's in California. He also said he doesn't know her boyfriend's name because she just has so many boyfriends he can't remember all of them. Jason gives police a story that Jane is always meeting guys online and that she only uses the internet and computers at a cafe because he's like, if I tell them that she's chatting to guys online, they're going to want to see her computer because they'd be able to see the people she's talking to. So he's thought about this. You can tell. He says, no, yeah, she talks to all these guys on the internet, but we don't have internet at our house. She goes to a internet cafe and she just meets tons of guys she has a ton of boyfriends i can't even remember their names he then gives police a false description of jane he is claiming that she has tattoos that she doesn't have and he's claiming she's shorter and weighs less than she actually did and it was all lies but it had police thinking that maybe they had made a mistake for a second because the body of the jane doe that they had found had no tattoos was taller weighed more than the description that jason was giving police at this time when asked if they had any problems at home jason said no none at all he loves his mother This is when his story gets messy because he says he actually physically saw her when they had dinner on the 16th at a mall at a place called Hometown Buffet. Then quickly tells police he's just guessing on all of these dates. He doesn't remember exactly, but he is certain that she will call soon and then they can speak to her then. Then police are like, okay, well, have you ever... Oh, I just... I just like did a finger point to be like, I'm a police asking you a question and I hit my microphone. Anyways, then the police are like, okay, well, have you ever been to Oceanside? And Jason says, no. Then police ask, oh, okay, because we have a report that your car was there and you were trying to dump a body in a dumpster and the security guard saw a picture of your license and he made a positive ID that that was you. And Jason is like, I don't know, wasn't me. (laughs) Okay, then they ask him for a DNA sample and to their surprise, he totally agrees. He's compliant. He's like, yes, I will give you a DNA sample and they're gonna use that DNA sample to test on the body of the Jane Doe they found to see if there's a connection there. So officers, they have now detained Jason and they are working on getting warrants to search his car and home. The officers leave the room and they leave Jason in there by himself. And he didn't know that they were recording him at this time. So when they leave him alone, he uses his cell phone to call Matthew and tells him to stay away from the apartment and not to go back. Police hear this, it's being recorded and police know for sure something is up. I mean, that phone call, yikes. Uh, Police come back and continue the questioning. And by 2.30 p.m., Jason confesses. He probably knows he's caught at this point, so he wants to try and control the narrative, I guess, by telling police how mentally unwell Jane was, which is true, and that she was abusive to him his entire life, which is also true. He tells police everything from his past, like how she made them homeless for so long, all her paranoia, the abuse, everything. Jason tells police that Jane came at him with a knife and that he never meant to kill her. Um, And he's trying to paint this picture of self-defense. Police ask him things like, why did you dismember the body like that? And he tells them he thought it would make it harder for them to ID her because he saw it on the Sopranos episode. He comes clean about 
everything. And he even tells police where they could find the head and hands. Like he is just totally transparent at this point. He, um, my thought is he's thinking my only way out of this is to just tell the truth, let them know how abused I was, and just really play up that self-defense. Jason makes it very clear to police that Matthew had nothing to do with it, that it was all him. He made that very clear. He always said that. But police are wondering if Matthew is even alive. They don't know. They have no idea if Jason killed him as well. So now they need to find Matthew to talk to him. In the meantime, police are searching the apartment and their main concern at this point is to see if there's more bodies in there which they search it and they don't. At that time, they only had a warrant to kind of, I guess, like sweep the apartment, but not to do like an entire thorough search. So after they go in and no bodies are discovered, they must retreat and wait for the other warrant to be cleared. And soon after it is, police go back in and they check the closet where Jason claims the body parts are and they find them. At first, they're unsure because there's no smell and... The bag just appears to be full of plastic bags. But when they start opening all of these, like they're it's just packed with plastic bags. So they're just removing them, removing these bags. And at first, like, I don't think there's any body parts in here. Like, we would smell this. So then they come across this bag at the bottom of it, like a black garbage bag, I believe it was. And they open it up and uh, they made the gruesome discovery. There was, there was Jane's head and hands. Since no air was getting to the remains, decomposition was very, very slow. And it was almost, the, the, the body parts were almost perfectly preserved because there was no air getting to it. They moved really fast in this case because that same day, they also find Matthew at a fast food restaurant. They had used Jason to lure him there. And as Jason sat in the back of a police car, he pointed out his brother and the police went to get Matthew. Matthew tells police that Jane is in Belize. He's sticking to the story. He's staying solid to his brother. He's like, no, my mom's in Belize. She went there with her boyfriend. And then police are like, okay, you need to tell us the truth we know okay we know Jason told us everything and Matthew's like okay that changes everything Matthew then gives police a story that's kind of mixed with truth and lies he tells them about the argument which is true he says that he left during the argument which wasn't true he was there in Jane's room while it was happening um and he says when he got home there was blood on the floor and Jason told him to go watch TV so he's claiming he didn't see a body he says that later Jason had asked him to dump something and he never asked any questions about what it was they were dumping which that is true Matthew says he was too scared to call police because police well why didn't you just call police you thought something happened and he was like oh, I was scared like and you could see where he's coming from because if you suspect that your brother has just killed your mother and now you're alone with your brother that's terrifying what would you do during the separate interviews with Jason and Matthew, police notice neither of the boys showed any emotion regarding the death of their mother. And at one point, Matthew says, quote, I loved her, but she deserved it, unquote. Ooh, wow, that is cold. Let's jump to the trial. Jason and Matthew's family supported them even though it was also Jane's family and it was it was Jane's mother and father it, it, it was Matthew and Jason's grandparents who who were supporting them still 
Matthew's father, Jose, also supported the boys and went to visit Matthew when he was detained, letting him know that he loves him and over all those years, he was looking for him and he did want to be part of his life, but he was also convinced that Jane had a restraining order on him for all those years and who could blame him not wanting to get near Jane? She had already falsely accused him of rape and had him imprisoned wrongfully for three years. June 6, 2003 was the date of the preliminary hearing, but the trials, they wouldn't be held until January 2005. Both boys were held in custody until the trial was held. At first, Jason's defense was self-defense, but then Matthew's attorney had Matthew testify against Jason, saying it wasn't self-defense and it was in fact planned and that Jason had talked about it many times before it had happened. And also in the book, it said when the two boys were being um, held in custody, like when they were in prison awaiting trial, their cells were kind of near each other. And Jason had heard that Matthew was going to testify against him. And Jason yelled at Matthew something like, oh, you know what snitches get in here? Or like, Ooh, really threatened him, which is just absolutely terrifying. It was also discovered through some investigating that Jason had been kind of leading people to believe that his mother was going to be leaving soon to go back to Illinois to take care of her grandmother, of their grandmother. Oh no, her grandmother, their great grandmother. And apparently like a month before Jane was murdered, Jason was kind of setting up this story like, yeah, but my mom's leaving. She's going to go take care of her sick grandmother. Uh, and then when detectives went to interview Jane's grandmother, Jane's grandmother was like, no, she was never going to come take care of me. Like we had talked about it, but she always said like, now wasn't the time or I can't do this now, or I don't have enough money to do it now. She always had an excuse. There was nothing set in stone. So they were like, was he trying to set up the murder like a month before? So that was brought up in court as well, I believe. Matthew eventually agreed to testify against his brother in court and ended up with a plea deal. And Matthew pled guilty to accessory to murder after the fact. He also testified for his brother. So he didn't just testify against him, but at Jason's trial, Matthew testified for his brother, taking the stand to recount the years of abuse they had both suffered from their mother. So he was like, yes, my brother did plan to kill my mother, but also you should know about all this abuse whether that's gonna affect the sentencing or not so i don't know i don't know if you want an in-depth look into this trial i suggest reading the book such good boys by tina derman because she goes full ham on all of the details it is like a quarter of the book is just the court case since Matthew took the plea deal, he was only sentenced to two years in jail. And I believe he was 17 years old when he was sentenced, meaning he would be free by the time he was 20, maybe earlier. Jason, on the other hand, uh, this is in California, so I'm pretty sure they do have the death penalty. He didn't get the death penalty, but he did get a very harsh punishment. He was sentenced to first degree murder and he received 25 years to life and he was sentenced on April 9th 2005. I couldn't find any information about what Matthew is doing today. Perhaps he's changed his name. I'm not sure but he would have been out of prison for a while now. 
As for Jason, if he gets released after 25 years, then that means he will be free in 2030, the year 2030, meaning he has served the majority of his sentence already, and he will be in his late 40s or early 50s when and if he is released. I would be interested to know what he's doing in prison right now, because he he was, is very intelligent. He loved biochemistry, computers. Um, and I know that you can take university classes and courses in prison. So I just wonder if he ever went ahead and studied something, maybe law, maybe he just went into law. Anyways, we'll find out one day, maybe. So that wraps up this week's case. And wow, that was a big one, but I felt it really necessary to elaborate on the lives of the boys to paint a picture. I just, I just wanted the whole story to be told. And, uh, yeah, it's incredibly sad that Jane never got the help she needed. Unfortunately, she was abusive. She was very, very sick. She had these two children and it's just, I just, I just have no idea what it would have been like for Matthew and, and Jay and Jason to endure those struggles for their entire life. Having a, a possibly paranoid schizophrenic mother. It's just so hard. Was murder the answer? Absolutely not. Jason essentially lost his life from trying to save his future. It's it's ironic. Why why couldn't he have just left the home? I have no idea. I've never seen an interview with him, but I think that would also be quite interesting. My best guess is that he didn't want to leave his brother. I've said that a few times in this episode. I think he didn't want to leave Matthew and he had a fear that he would probably never see them again if he separated from them because Jane was so paranoid and moved around so much. But yeah, Jason must have felt pretty desperate to do what he did. Um, I don't even know who to give a hell no to. So I guess um, to murder. Yeah, to murder, I say hell no. Check out the Hell No True Crime podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Please follow, subscribe, and rate on Spotify. Please, please, please give me a review and rating on Apple Podcast. I also have my email too. Hell No, a true crime podcast. Is that my email? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Anyways, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.